1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for December 16th, 2021, the Build Back Later edition. (laughs) I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined, of course, by John Diggerson of CBS Sunday Morning in New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. And by Emily emily mazalon <laughs> <laughs> emily mazalon
2: wow my name gets scrambled in so many ways but i've never heard anyone emily add an M to it. i was thinking I of making like a it. joke
1: and i think i got I, so i was actually looking at my computer and it i saw ma emily <laughs> ma, ma Bazelon. emily Bazelon of the new york times magazine and yale university law school is in new haven hello emily hey this week on the Gabfest the depressing developments in the January 6th investigation. Oh my gosh. On the future of American democracy. Oh my gosh. I woke up really glum. I'm just going to tell you that. Then is Build Back Better dead or just sleeping? We will find out. Then we will talk to Slate's Joel Anderson about his new season of Slow Burn, which is about the LA riots. Plus we will have cocktail chatter. I don't think... I have ever been quite as depressed about the future of our country as I was this week reading about the January 6th investigation and the groundwork that is being laid for a more successful coup in the future. I really, really have been low. I usually am not, I usually am able to sort of slip out of that stuff, get out of the slipstream of, of uh, political horror. But I just, it feels terrible to me. And so let's let's get into it. Let's start with Mark Meadows, the former member of Congress, the last chief of staff to President Trump. The House this week voted to recommend a criminal contempt of Congress charge against Meadows for withholding documents and testimony from the January 6th committee. So, Emily, what did he do? I mean, is this a crime? Is he going to go to prison for this? What's going to happen?
2: What's interesting about this is Meadows turned over about 9,000 pages of documents that he decided, somebody decided, were not privileged. But he is withholding other documents that he says are privileged, and he's withholding his testimony. He's not even willing to show up and just plead the fifth or only answer certain questions, which has been the compromise position that other former advisors or current advisors to the president have come up with in this kind of situation. I imagine that's still where this story will land, assuming that it doesn't take so long to play out that the Democrats lose control of the House. But it's not totally clear to me because the Justice Department, at least currently, would have to take the step of itself declaring that it was taking over this case from Congress. And, you know, the Justice Department did this a little while ago with regard to Steve Bannon, who also refused to show up. Same thing, January 6 inquiry. But Bannon wasn't working for the government at the time. He wasn't an advisor to Trump. He was just like a private citizen at that time point in history. Meadows, on the other hand, was both President Trump's chief of staff, and he's a former member of Congress. And so it is a different order of magnitude for the Justice Department to declare him in contempt and pursue this in court. That said it does seem like he is crucial to this congressional inquiry. And the notion that you can just decide not to show up entirely, that is a real slap in the face to Congress's investigative powers. Not just slap in the face, that's wrong. That is a real damaging blow to Congress's investigative powers.
1: John, there was a great phrase in The Atlantic this week, the paperwork coup from From David David Graham. Graham. And what David Graham is saying is that Almost more dangerous, perhaps more dangerous than the insurrectionists uh, who invaded the Capitol and who, you know, sought to hang Mike Pence and and uh, assaulted Capitol police officers and desecrated you know, desecrated the the chamber of the of the House was what people were doing in the shadows with legal chicanery. Uh, people like John Eastman and Jen Ellis and Sidney Powell, and then abetted apparently by Mark Meadows, abetted by this uh, member of Congress Perry and from Pennsylvania, who's I'd never heard of, the House Freedom Caucus new chair, um, to concoct legal schemes to cast out on the election, overturn the election, but to do it with um, with paperwork. Yeah, they failed, but did, they didn't really fail.
3: That's one of the things that we've learned in in the last week or so, um, and what's an important development here, is there are two, well, there are multiple ways in which President Trump tried to overturn overturn the election. One was in the improvisational moment with the riot, um, and it was a failure of his duty to do anything but admire the riot right he was supposed to do things to make it stop and we should go back to that because there were some interesting disclosures about that but then there was all the other work that he was doing specifically on the phone to the election officials in various states specifically on the phone to the dust justice department pressing these really pelting officials with false claims crazy theories And that was all work being done by the president himself. He's in the center of the drama. Then there's what you're talking about and what's really important here. And the reason it was always so bankrupt and barren for people to say, well, we don't need a commission is that what we're looking at here is not just the events of the day and the behavior of a president, but the behavior of those around a president to snap into line with madness and then use the systems and structure of government to try to make that madness happen, which in this case is to overthrow an election. And that's the paperwork coup that you're talking about that David Graham called it. And that's what we learn more about in terms of this PowerPoint presentation that was supposedly put together by the president's uh, man to uh, create a kind of pathway, quasi-legal justification for... Mike Pence not counting electoral votes from states that allegedly had electoral irregularities. And, and then the New York Times on Thursday had a long account of the way in which members of Congress joined with the president to undermine the work that Congress uh, should have been doing in, in certifying the electoral vote count. That's really important because those are all structures and systems that are supposed to be in place to stop the madness of a single occupant of the presidency, And ultimately, they did. Mike Pence, you know, ultimately did the right thing and so forth. But um, as I've said before, and and as you've already hinted at, you know, there are some people who think, oh, democracy in America dodged a bullet on January 6th, and there are others who think, oh, we just have to aim better. And that's the project that's going on now as members of the Republican Party work to change the system so that they can get away with what they were unable to get away with last time.
1: Right. I mean, so, Emily, like— All of the mechanisms, all of the measures, all the trends point toward a weakening of the systems that held up, barely held up in 2020. You have Republicans stripping nonpartisan officials of power over elections in some states, making it easier to overturn election results and replace electors, giving the legislatures more power to replace electors, running people to take over obscure local election boards, making making nonpartisan offices partisan, making it harder for people to vote in certain places. And then I think maybe most importantly, driving from office the people who showed backbone. So anyone who did kind of stand up and and say, nah, 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 this, this system has to work for all of us, uh, is being whirled out of the Republican Party, is being hurled out of the party. And that means that the party itself becomes totally invested in these crazy ideas and theories and and thus happy to to convey them in 2024 with even more vigor.
2: Right. You both lose the Republican member of the Michigan Election State Board who held the line and Brad Raffensperger potentially will see the Secretary of State of Georgia and the participation in election litigation of the Secretary of State in Arizona, who's a Democrat. And then you also send this message that if you want to succeed in this party, uh, you have to get on board because otherwise you're going to be drummed out. And obviously, Liz Cheney, the price that she is paid in the Republican leadership in the House is the sort of most visible example of that. But it really matters that it's happening on so many levels. My colleague Charlie Homans wrote a chilling piece about this in the Times that ran over the weekend. And then Barton Gelman wrote a piece for the Atlantic that pulls all of these strands together, talking about the conspiracy theories and really interesting research about who actually participated in the January 6th rioting, people who were older than typical, you know, kind of radicals in this kind of situation. And this I found really chilling the factor that correlated with participation was declining white population in your county and the idea that white people are kind of losing their grip of power on the United States. And, you know, that notion that we are going to descend into some kind of like enough radical support for this idea of, like, preventing, quote, replacement that, you know, we have to keep the country dominated by white people. Like, that is so incredibly toxic. And yet it really seems to have a hold on a certain segment of the population. And one thing that Barkelman Elman pointed out is you don't need that many people to be enthralled to that idea to have unleashed a powerful group in terms of this kind of flexing of, you know, violence slash political power and control of the Republican Party. So, I mean, I found all that, like you, David, just like really chilling. And I feel like we're going to look back at this time as this potentially as this like calm before the storm. And we're also going to really wonder why the Democrats in control of Congress did not do more to try to protect our elections from future monkeying of the kind that we're talking about. I mean, this whole idea that state legislatures are going to be able to declare the winner of the presidential election, no matter what the voters say. I thought Bart did a really good job of showing all that and the kind of lack of urgency from Democrats about really, really protecting against that kind of unthinkable result. It's no longer unthinkable.
3: The primary point you made about the price you pay now if you don't put forward these views about um, election security. Just another reminder is that that price you pay is set totally by Donald Trump. He created the environment in which this was a way to achieve success in the party by creating a whole false set of claims that the party now believes. And this is proof of his power power of leadership of the party, which means if you connect that with what we learned about the bureaucratic coup and the different ways in which the president, both improvisationally on the 6th, but then repeatedly leading up to it in a variety of things he did, thoroughly and with, uh, you know, considered attention that continues to this day, tried to overthrow a free and fair election. And so you have a person who tried to overthrow a presidential election as the leader and Driving force of a political party, and the majority of the members, both public and you know, in office and and regular voters, are just fine with that. I, I've
1: come to a very dismal conclusion that I want to share, and here's my dismal conclusion. My conclusion is that the only way the United States gets through this next period and survives as a democracy, as we as we understand it, literally the only way is for there to be a complete democratic wipeout in the next couple of elections, for Republicans to do great, legitimately great, like great, not just great like we snuck it through and won because we gerrymandered, but to really win these elections, to have all the levers of power and to feel their power, to 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 possess power, and basically for the temperature of the Republican Party, for all these QAnon people, for the Proud Boys, for their temperature just to go down, to have so much success that their craziness and paranoia diminishes.
2: Oh, my God. It, I think that is totally appal- implausible. Like, that it's does an appa- not... It's f-
1: an appalling thought. It's oh. an appalling no, thought. No, it's, but it's not I, just it's an, an appalling, appalling thought. thought. It's,
2: like, deeply wrong. I just yes. don't... Uh, I mean, ju- yes, it would save I've, us from having, like, a crisis on November 4th or the day after the election, but then it's going to cause an, a rising of temperature and all kinds of other consequences.
1: Well, I don't know that that's true. I think what it oh. does is it is it... Can I finish my thought, guys? No.
2: No, go ahead. Of course you can.
1: (laughs) Well, I couldn't amend the go. I just think that the system, like the system is going to crack up if if there is a close election in 2024 and Democrats have a chance to win the White House. The Republicans are not going to let that happen. I think it's going to, undoubtedly, the system will crack. And the way the system doesn't crack is if there's a... Completely legitimate Republican victory, there is then just sort of some period of quasi normal governance under Republicans, and the Republicans start to behave somewhat more like a regular political party and just lose this sort of crazy conspiratorial paranoic fantasy which is which is increased by being out of office. i don't like I, I'm not saying that this necessarily will work. I just think it's the only possibility of us maintaining these systems the because because we need to have two legitimate we need to have two parties that recognize the legitimacy of the system for for this to work and right now the republicans are are saying we're not going to recognize the legitimacy in 2024 so that's my hope it's not my hope it's my fear but my belief so, so argue against it. Why well, am I I'm, wrong? I'm just try- we
2: were trying not we're to We're just interrupt. waiting for you to stop
3: talking. <laughs> okay, now I'm for done. For dinner time. Um, <laughs> oh, my the, God. Uh, the- Come on. I think there's, I don't know that there's any evidence that the passions you're talking about are going to be slaked by victory. I think you've seen both with respect, Newt Gingrich, when he ultimately resigned from his post, blamed cannibals within his own party. John Boehner, when he was forced out, blamed um, uh, the, the, the false prophets within his own party. The system of politics right now gains you authority and attention when you say that people are selling out whether it's and they and the people are evil whether it's democrats or people within your own party and you see it with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and and Gosar and others who are already attacking Kevin McCarthy so that victory doesn't change the way in which certain kinds of politicians gain credence so they win and those forces will now want all the things they want and when they don't get it they will be inflamed ever more so i don't think that they're gonna um that those forces of inflammation go away. Because the forces of inflammation are not related to reality in many instances. And so the change in reality doesn't necessarily change their passions. You well, except-
2: reward the Republican Party for precisely the behavior that is threatening the democracy if they win, right? The lesson of that is like go for it. And then you also put them in control of all the parts of the government that would allow them to further entrench minority rule. So I just don't see how it works out super well for our democracy. Like, I see the avoiding of the immediate crisis, but beyond that, it seems to me like a recipe for future erosion slash bigger crisis down the line.
1: Well, I think that a lot of these people are kind of perfervidly, crazily interested in politics for momentary reasons. And actually, politics is boring, ultimately. And this kind of crazed enthusiasm will sort of wear itself out. And the people who've excitedly joined boards of elections are going to be like, this is a really dull job to be on this board of elections and they're going to just stop being involved. Now it may be that they've degraded the system so much during that time that they're on the board of the elections that it's irretrievable. That is very possible, but it may be that that it just is like it, it wears itself out in the way that all, all revivals all great awakenings wear themselves out
2: but think about how skillful right-wing media and right-wing politicians are at ginning up these kind of culture war conflicts right so like you can always find something to be super outraged about even if it's not control of the white house like i just think that and the more control you have over the organs of power the easier it is to do that
3: especially when the entire system runs on outrage and fake outrage um can I, speaking of which, we should note what was mentioned in these texts. You had texts from various Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram on the day of the six to Mark Meadows saying the president's got to do something, the president's got to do something. I think if that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it makes what's obvious what's obvious, which is that there was one person who could have done something and that person didn't do it. Uh, it also makes it obvious that the people attacking um, the Capitol were not uh, members of Antifa, but that they were supporters of President Trump. It's not in dispute. Those of us who use reason know what happened. But the people who sent those texts have been on a consistent campaign, which is a part of what we're talking about, a consistent campaign, which started on the 6th of January to say that something opposite happened. And that's not a sin against journalism, because they're not journalists, and they, ne- they never pretended to be. They were always advocates for the president, and that's fine. The left has its advocates on TV, too. This is not a Chris Cuomo case where they were pretending to be journalists, but acting in a different way. They're opinion people who are favors of, you know, friends of the president. But what it seems to me it is, is a total hoodwinking of their viewers, because, back to Emily's point, they position themselves as protectors of the American, traditional American values, you know, and, and the kind of good and upright way of behaving. But in this case, they're basically selling their viewers a storyline, which is different from their facts, as evidenced by the text they sent in the moment. And so they're basically duping these people. And so if they're duping them on this one most important thing, you can imagine lots of other ways in which they dupe them. So it's a sin against their viewers, not against, you know, journalism.
2: Why are they so different from Chris Cuomo? I don't think they hold themselves out differently. Like when Sean Hannity went on stage with President Trump, Fox declared that that was like a problem and scolded him. I mean, I agree with you that they play a different role, but I don't think they hold themselves out as purely opinion avatars and advocates of Trump's.
3: Right, because they need... They need to pretend that they are the, the not just total partisans, that they're coming at this with a, you know, using their reason and that they're not total acolytes of the president. But I think that's different than, say, Brett Baer, who is a more traditional journalist.
2: I, I don't really see how the distinctions are evident in the way their roles are described by their networks. Like, I agree with you. That's the real the reality of what's happening, but I actually think it's important that CNN fired Cuomo and that Fox presumably will do nothing of the sort with Hannity and Ingram. Like that's a distinction between Fox and the mainstream media, this whole issue of like, do you correct your errors? Do you admit when you've breached a journalistic ethic? So I just don't wanna let go of that part personally.
3: Yeah, well, I guess one is, if you think of it in the newspaper model, one is an opinion page person and one is a you know, news person. And that's the distinction. And Fox allows their opinion page people to do, you know, behave in a way that the New York Times might not let its opinion page people do. But they're both opinion page people. That's the that's why I think there's a distinction between what CNN CNN was never saying Chris Cuomo's on the opinion page. They're saying he's a he's a newscaster.
2: So here's my closing thought on this topic, the role of the Supreme Court here. There is a theory that in elect- in the governance of elections, only state legislatures of state entities like courts and administrative bodies, that only legislatures have the power to set the rules. And so then if you deviate from the rules at all for discretionary reasons, like for example, to deal with the pandemic and that deviation doesn't come directly from the legislature itself, then it is illegitimate. And we know that there are four Strong votes on the Supreme Court for this theory of kind of independent power of legislatures over elections. We don't know what Amy Coney Barrett thinks. There's also a good reason to think that John Roberts, who is not one of the clear votes, also agrees with this view. And, you know, if the Supreme Court starts down that road, we are going to end up with a a more partisan more vulnerable set of state election rules because you we won't have any way to intervene or to kind of protect them and make changes like keeping a polling place open or whatever that are not directly in the text of the statute. So that's just another thing to keep an eye on.
1: Slate plus members, you get so much for your slate plus membership and GabFest listeners, we have a special announcement today. Slate is having a holiday sale. So if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, but you want to become a Slate Plus member because of all the incredible things you get, your annual Slate Plus membership is $25 off for your first year, right now, for a limited time. So it is less than $4 a month to get a Slate Plus subscription now. You get member-exclusive episodes and segments from us and other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. You have no ads on any of our podcasts. You get unlimited reading on the Slate site, and you're supporting the GapFest, and you're supporting Slate's journalism. So join Slate Plus now by going to slate.com slash Plus. And if you do that, you'll get our bonus segment today, which is going to be about some of the amazing conundrums. We have our conundrum show coming up in a couple of weeks, and we didn't get through the literally 836 conundrums that you sent us. And so we saved some of them, and we did a Slate Plus segment today about some of those conundrums. So, or we will do that Slate Plus segment. We haven't done it yet, but we will do it. So go to Slate.com/slash GapFest Plus to join today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is the veil now streaming only on Hulu.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: The massive social spending package that has passed the House sits in limbo, or maybe it's purgatory. I can't remember which one, whichever is worse. <laughs> it's kind of like I was thinking about this. It's like a Zeno's paradox of a bill, it is constantly getting halfway to its destination and it's constantly becoming half of its size, yet it is never actually reaching its target. It was gonna be done in May, it was gonna be done in July, then September, then before Thanksgiving, then before Christmas, now, who can say? It's just incrementally closer and closer, and yet it will never get there, in the way the arrow, Zeno's arrow never got there. So John, now there's this this totally incomprehensible to me idea, which hopefully you can explain, which is that, oh, we're gonna replace Build Back Better with a voting rights bill. And somehow that will not be subject to the filibuster and somehow that will pass before Christmas and somehow Joe Manchin and and Kirsten cinema will support it and we'll do build back butter better next year. Is that really what's happening?
3: I like build back butter. Um, Uh. Yeah, that seems to be what's happening. The idea is basically, well, first of all, they're not getting anywhere in the negotiations with Joe Manchin. There is no, despite the artificial time pressure, which is both necessary to get people to sit down and do the hard work of legislating, but also is necessary for news organizations to create a sense of drama. There's no, there's no reason it has to be in the end of an election year. I mean, sorry, the end of, of, of this year, an election year is not um, necessarily a tough time to get legislation and passed. In fact, the political scientists will tell you that more legislation gets passed in the election year. So, um, It it ain't going anywhere. There is still cloggage in the pipes. Um, So they're moving on voting rights because they see threats and permanent things being done in various states that will make it harder for Democrats to vote. And so they want to head those off because the clock is ticking there.
1: How do you—we'll get back to Build Back Better, but how do you actually get a voting rights bill through the Senate— with the filibuster being what it is, especially if Manchin is saying whatever changes that have to take place to the filibuster have to be agreed to by Republicans.
3: How would it work? Mm. Great question. Because Manchin's saying two irreconcilable things. One is we're not going to change the filibuster, we're not going to do a carve-out, but he says failure is not an option. Well, he's he says failure is not an option, and he says we're going to get 10 Republicans. You're not going to get 10 Republicans to undo the gains Republicans have been making at the state house to ensure that they maintain majority control. It's not going to happen.
2: I have another problem with this, which is if I am all for a voting rights bill, like I think it's really important. And I can even see just like, a not just a pragmatic case for putting it before a build back better, but like a democracy case, but not this bill. This bill doesn't do enough to address all the threats to election administration and making sure that the loser doesn't overturn the results of the election that we were just talking about. Like, this bill is solving the problems of, like, 2016 and 2018, not 2020 going forward. And I don't... I, I really find it very, very strange that it you is me- not designed to address the... What looks to me, per our previous topic, like the clear and present danger.
3: You And in that case, you're talking about the Freedom to Vote Act? Yes. I thought there were... Um, there are
2: some there are some provisions in it. It's not like it does nothing. It's just not addressing some of the real problems adequately enough, in my view.
1: What is the deal with Mansion Build Back Better? What is it that he? I mean, he has been looking at this bill. I mean, even he probably could have read the bill by now in the in the year that it's been under consideration, and he presumably could have, uh, you know, done paid some attention to it and and figured out what he really wants like what is his game here is it really there's no bill that he will vote for i assume they should just let him write the bill they should just say what do you want in the bill you can have the bill and then just pass it i don't understand it well plus there's a political case
2: for only doing a few things well and big as opposed to everything smaller and shrunken down
3: well, the the challenge was, well, I, guess, I mean, this is going to be a really interesting question for months, was whether tactically the, the right approach was taken. I mean, first of all, there was a huge appetite in the Democratic Party to do a lot about a, a huge swath of social spending in the wake of COVID-19, which exposed all of these inequities in our country. So. They had to do that. The the tension has always been, what does Joe Manchin want? What does the rest of the party want? And how will that get worked out? And what is essentially going to happen, I think, is what you're saying, David, which is basically they're going to let Manchin write the bill, and then it's going to be a question of whether people on the other side of the party from Joe Manchin are going to allow that to pass. My guess is that in an election year, you got to have something. Something's better than nothing, and they will essentially let Manchin... So what does Manchin want? not exactly clear. He kept talking about threats to inflation, wants it under 1.75. He's definitely against the methane curbing portions of the bill because he comes from the second largest coal producing state. So he's got a lot of reasons. But this week was his worry about the child tax credit extending beyond and costing too much money, which gives about $300 a month per child to families and has lifted 40% of the kids out of poverty. Well, yes, but
1: look, this is what happens when you can't manage to when a Senate majority, when you have, you are subject to your 50th senator and your 50th senator is, you know, represents the most conservative state in the union is barely clinging on and he gets to write your bill. So you can, I don't know, take, take, take the wins you can get or don't. It's, right. That's your choice. If it's me, I take the wins that I can get, but I'm not a democratic senator or democratic politician or democratic legislature. And it is, it's evident that it's going to be the worst of all worlds that the people who do want this bill to pass are desperate for it to pass don't like it very much. They're not going to like the version it does pass as, and the people who don't like the bill are going to still think it's, you know, socialist commie uh, grasping big government and everyone's going to be unhappy about it, but it's, it's beats the alternative. Which is nothing. Which is nothing.
3: Yeah. And I, I don't see it as, I mean, I, Democrats are obviously in a pickle. There's a lot of political headwinds they're fighting against. The only Chance they have to fight back against them is if they pass something and can say, you know, I don't know, something like, you know. Were for you the other parties for coup. I don't know, but they'll find some negative partisanship way to appeal to um, to their voters. That
2: was good. I liked that rhyme you did. Was that like a spur of the moment rhyme?
3: Um, well, it's the only thing I could find that could rhyme with coup. But I mean, you know, they'll. I f-
2: would buy that bumper sticker. I
3: mean, that's the kind of messaging that a, that a pairing down allows for, um, and that's the best hope they've got. I mean, I am not. This is this is you know in this tricky moment they're in and by the way it may not be enough
1: I, I'm sorry I was distracted because I'm just thinking of rhymes for coup
3: I was shortening
1: it we're
2: for you not coup how about that
1: the, that doesn't have the right rhythm it doesn't, it's, like the wrong,
2: it's not iambic pentameter yeah, it's not we're okay. for you the other parties for coup
1: no we're for you they're for coup John hit it we're That's,
2: for you they're for coup
3: they're for Okay. Coup. Um, <laughs> And the Republicans uh, can do—they're uh, all commies. We're for mommies. I don't know what uh, legislation. It's also
2: super we're just gonna do, oh we're my just god, gonna hire that it. man! I don't
3: know what I don't know what legislation that would connect with, though. You frankly, you turned into mm-hmm.
2: Don Draper of political ads. They're gonna have,
3: to, um, they're <laughs> gonna have to. They're gonna have to like come up with some legislation they support that would actually fit that bill. I. Yeah.
2: Th- eh. No, necessarily, <laughs> that's <mommies laughs> <sounds>
3: like
4: totally.
2: <laughs> We're for optional. mommies.
1: We're for mommies. They're for commies. What turnaround in 2024 is going to be the Republican Party's entire messaging campaign? It's that John John Dickerson will be the he'll be the Karl Rove he'll be the Steve Bannon
3: of the late 2020s for the yeah, Republican Party. He wrote Party. a good
2: one for either side. I can thought. I
3: can I just say while we've gone on completely off the rails here that we should note that in this week that the president's agenda is grinding. To a halt which by the way as we've all discussed i think is what happens when you have such narrow majorities and this has nothing to do with the filibuster build back better is basically you've got two democratic senators who aren't on board yet but the senate can act congress can act when it wants to nearly 800 billion dollars in defense spending was passed mm. in the senate by 89 to 10. it's passed in the house president's going to sign it it includes a, a thorough review of with a commission of the failures of Afghanistan, commissions sometimes get a bad rap as, as things that don't work in certain high political moments, not in this case, got 89 votes in the Senate. Um, Congress can act when it wants to. And it's just sometimes there's sort of knee jerk cover that says, oh, Congress can't do anything. Congress does a whole lot of stuff. Um, it's just does it on things where there is, um, you know, broad agreement, and there's broad agreement to spend, in this case, even more than the president requested. So it can operate distinct from a president, in, in this case, to spend more money on defense.
5: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money, so you can make more. And now get $250 when you join RAMP for free. Just go to RAMP.com slash easy. RAMP.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
0: On Debt, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
1: I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving.
0: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.
1: We're joined now by Joel Anderson of Slate. Joel is the host of Slow Burn Season 6 on the LA Riots. This is the latest chapter in Slate's tremendous history podcast series, a series that takes an event that was profoundly important and kind of hard to understand at the time it happened and has echoed down to today and and goes back and revisits it. So Joel's series on the LA riots is an incredible series. It's now about six episodes in. Uh, you can go back and listen to all of it, both as a regular Slate podcast listener, but also as a Slate Plus Member, you'll get bonus episodes, and it's a story of the attack on Rodney King by by L.A. police. The videotape of that, the murder of a black girl by a Korean American store owner that went largely unpunished. The terrible police department overseen by its terrible chief, Daryl Gates. The acquittal of King's assaulters and the riots themselves. It's a really it's it's a broad swath, and it's a magnificent podcast. I cannot recommend it enough. So, Joel, I just want you to start. Um, you are doing this podcast in the year after the George Floyd protests. What particularly echoed for you as you were going back to the LA riots about what has and has not changed in American cities and American policing?
6: Uh, well, first of all, thank you all so much for having me on. Huge fan of you all, you know, just so I had to say that first off. But you know, so I didn't intentionally mean to do this—that it was going to be some sort of parallel moment, or that there was going to be some resonance with the story that I wanted to tell about the '92 riots. You know, with the current political and social moment. But you know, one thing that I have seen going back over this time is that yeah, you're so many of the problems that we think that we can handle. In policing, they just never really come true, whether it's, you know, through political change, you know, on a local level, you know, maybe the mayors will switch over and somebody has different priorities. Maybe in your city, it's impossible to hold the police chief accountable. Like maybe there's some sort of civil service protections that make it difficult to dislodge them. Or there are also just social conditions that if you look back 1990s, the early 90s, and you look to now and things look really grim on the ground. And so, you know, you see all these different parallels, you know, over these last 30 years. And so those were the things that sort of kept coming up. It's like, oh man, you think that, you know, the people in LA in 1992 were extremely optimistic. They'd come up with a plan to oust their longtime police chief who, you know, sort of fomented a culture of contempt for the public and, and government oversight. And they're like, okay, we, you know, now we figured out what the problem is. And if you talk to people in LA today, they're like, well, there have been some changes, but fundamentally, the culture of policing is the problem, and that's a lot harder to get your arms around. Um, and so, that's the sort of thing that when I I'm, when I was you know looking back at the story, that was the thing that sort of struck me. It's like, oh, these people have been people have been working on these problems forever, um, and it just they seem to persist in spite of that.
2: I was doing a bunch of reporting on Los Angeles in the last several months for a story that ended up being mostly about the district attorney's office, but just to sort of support what you're saying, one of the things I kept hearing was we've had these waves really since 1965, since the Watts uprising, about trying to change the police culture and that there have been some changes to the LAPD, especially to the leadership, but you still have this entrenched culture, sometimes in the rank and file of the LAPD and really in the sheriff's department. So Los Angeles is this enormous county of more than 10 million people the LAPD polices Los Angeles City proper, but then you have the sheriff who has policing authority through all the parts of the county that don't have separate police forces. And that sheriff is a real kind of old school law and order figure, not quite like Daryl Gates, the police chief in the time of 1992 that you're um, reporting on. But it just seems like it's really hard in such a huge metropolis to get a handle on this issue. And I wonder if that was something that struck you um, when you were doing your research and reporting.
6: That's absolutely right. That, um, you know, I can't say that I know that much about the uh, the current sheriff, although some of the people that follow me on social media have made it a point to repeatedly uh, point out that he that there are some gangs within the uh, L.A. Sheriff's Department, allegedly. Yeah, no joke.
2: They're sometimes called cliques, but yes, they're operating kind of like gangs.
6: Right, yeah. And so, I mean, but that's the sort of thing that you saw in LAPD in the late 90s, for instance. And this is, you know, theoretically after there's been this reckoning, right? And that's a word we hear a lot. But after there's been this reckoning in the early 90s with LAPD, and then within a decade, there are allegations that there are people that are involved in gangs, all the same accusations of brutality are coming up again. And so even in the moment, like when things are the most, there's the most attention, there's the most political will and, and, you think that you've made some changes, and then you see a few years later, you're like, oh, wait, that popped right back up. We didn't actually do much to do with that. But but even that, I mean, you know, it's also a problem that's bigger than the police. Um, you know, the prosecution of the district attorney's office, um, it's very difficult to get them to prosecute police officers that are accused of wrongdoing. And even if they do do it, then they're sort of at a disadvantage. You've got judges, like David mentioned the case of Latasha Harlins. So now you have something, everything's falling into place. You've got a a district attorney willing to, uh, to, to prosecute. You've got a jury that is willing to convict. And then at the end of the day, you have a judge that says, you know what? I think that you're sufficiently apologetic and you don't need to go to prison. So um, it's, it's like, it almost goes, it goes beyond law enforcement to the entire system is sort of a problem. Um, if you're trying to, um, create one that dispenses justice equally and
3: fairly. Joel, when you were looking back at this, what was the moment, or was there a moment, but where you thought either A, I forgot that, or B, oh my God, how is this a part of the story and we it wasn't hugely important at the time? Or, I mean, what were the undiscovered nuggets that really leapt out at you?
6: Oh man, the undiscovered nuggets. What a good question. Um, well, I, you know, I, w- I would just say some of this, you know, as we started on this process, you know, you, there's a lot of time thinking about like the big political and cultural moments in there, you know, from, um, you know, the, the tape itself, like the vi- the, the virality of the tape, which is not a word that people use back then, but it was like one of the very first, um, tapes to, to sort of get that same, the, one of the first examples of like visceral, clear police abuse, uh, to go out. But the, for me, um, Rodney King was really interesting because you know, as a kid I, you know this, this when this happened, I was you know a teenager or not even not even quite a teenager, and Rodney King was just really much a punchline to me. I mean, he was just somebody that people laughed at, he wasn't you know he didn't seem very smart, and I mean, to be frank, I mean, people laughed at him for getting his ass kicked, and you know it, you know we we'd ceased to sort of look at him as a human and thought of him as an object, and so talking to his family. And the people that knew him was sort of a revelation to me that, you know, to, act, to actually think about him as a human being that went through this very terrible experience, who lived out the worst moment of his life in front of millions of people, and then had to go on, right? That was the thing, I mean, in terms of like discovery, like the idea that Rodney King was somebody that was more than the worst moment of his life. Um, yeah. That was the thing that really struck me, I think.
1: Joel, I was struck uh, by your interview, I think in this week's episode, with Kiki Watson, uh-huh. which I think is extraordinary. I think like that's worth the price of admission because Kiki Watson, it turns out, is one of the rioters. When you say the LA riots, here's a person who was uh, rioting, who was one of the people responsible for the the terrible assault on Reginald Denny, who was a truck driver who who made uh, the error of driving through the intersection of Florence and Normandy during the height of the first night of riots. And here's a man who ended up serving time in prison for his behavior during the riots who's here to talk about it 30 years later and it's just i mean it's just so extraordinary and visceral and you know him trying to explain what he was doing and and what i I just am interested in your how you found him and then what your take is on on he doesn't really justify himself i mean he just explains himself
6: well i was going to ask i was like were you shocked because i I think that was kind of what i was I expected people to be a little bit uh, (laughs) taken aback by how he's responded to it over the years. That is consistent with who he has been since the very start. Um, If you go back to 1993, so this is about a year and a half after that moment at Florence and Normandy, where he, you know, for people that have not heard the. Podcast yet. Kiki Watson's one of the four people that assaulted um, and was charged for assaulting Reginald Denny, a white truck driver who came through that intersection on the, the day of the the verdicts. And Reynolds Denny I mean, got beat up really badly, and Kiki Watson was one of the people that did it. And so anyway, Kiki Watson gets convicted, serves time in jail, and then a month after he gets out of jail, he goes on the Phil Donahue show with Reginald Denny with the you know, the intentions to set them up. There's gonna be this moment of contrition and the victim and the victimizer are going to come together. And Kiki Watson just did not apologize in a way that a lot of people thought was sufficient. And in fact, it'd be fair to say that he horrified people, right? That he said, well, I'm sorry for the injuries I gave him, but I'm not really sorry for the anger. So he's saying that in 1993. Well, that is essentially the same thing that he is saying in 2021, that, look, I was caught up in the moment. I was angry about the way that police had treated me and people I knew and loved for years And this was an outburst that had not very much to do with Reginald Denny. And look, you know, I can't tell him to be sorry. You know, (laughs) Uh, I don't, I clearly nobody can. Right. But that is the sort of way that he has come to explain himself. He said, I got caught up in the moment and I unleashed my anger on somebody that may have not been the person that deserved it. But like, that's just what happened. And yeah, I, I was curious as to how people would, would take that. Um, but the thing is, is that Kiki Watson has made his peace with that. Like, that's just how he moves through the world. And he's not... You can't you can't guilt him into feeling any differently.
2: I'll just give you my reaction. I mean, I took it as he is trying to keep the focus on these larger forces that are were the backdrop for his behavior. And I totally get it. But I also felt like he was sort of undermining himself because if he was able to also... Ask for forgiveness, say that he was sorry for this individual act against like an individual human being who was not really the source of the trouble at all. Then I feel like the larger point would actually be more powerful. But that's just not where he's at. Yeah,
6: no, I don't, I don't think so. I, you know, it, I don't want to put words in Kiki's mouth because he was generous enough to talk with us, um, which. I mean, why would he do that? There's no need for him to do that at this point. Totally. Uh, so, cl- so clearly, he feels like there's some things that he still needs to say. But um, I don't think he's sorry. You know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I don't think he's actually really sorry about what happened. I think that Reginald Denny is just a stand-in. Like, like, he's, like he and he basically says this. He's just like anybody who wasn't black got it at the intersection. So Reginald Denny could have been anybody that wasn't black um, and was representative to him of some sort of oppressive power. That's not right. I don't think that that's how people should behave or think um, in that moment. But um, it does, for at least the way that he explains it, it, it makes sense because, you know, it seems, it seems that he believes that. Like he, he, maybe he's just convinced himself of that and he, he thinks that it's the right thing to say, hey, um, you know, I didn't mean to hurt that guy. But fundamentally, like the argument is the same. Look, I was mad. I was justified to being mad and things happened.
2: You decided to talk about the L.A. riots as opposed to, like, the L.A. uprising or the L.A. rebellion um, throughout the podcast. And I have mixed feelings about, you know, all of the language policing that's going on more generally. But this is a particular discussion that I'm really interested in. And I wonder why you stuck with the older, um, more traditional term.
6: Man, I'm, uh, yeah, That's, that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It was very tough. That's a conversation we had internally a lot about how to refer to it, right? Because you're right. There is a lot of discussion as to whether, oh, is it a riot? Is it unrest? Is it an uprising? Is it an insurrection? You know, all these other terms that people, uh, the nomenclature that people use today. Um, not the things that people called it then. And so at the end of the day, we decided to stick with riots. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, that's what people remember. Like that is the term that people remember from that moment. Like we, we weren't going around calling it the LA uprising in 1993. Right. Um, and so like, that just makes it easier for people to grab hold on and to, uh, to be distinctive, but also, you know, it wasn't all an uprising. It wasn't all, an expression of, like, the powerless rising up against the powerful. Like, some people really went out there and were just opportunists and caused havoc, hurt people, stole stuff, had no political analysis of what had happened. They were just out for theirs, uh, for lack of a better term. And so there are parts of it that were right. And that, you know, look, man, maybe that might get me in trouble with people, right? You know, for some people that, you know, that I might find myself politically aligned with, because I do think that, I think that sometimes that people, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, sometimes you got to, let people know that you're pissed, um, but I, I do think that like it wasn't all in the name of good. It wasn't all in the name of speaking up against institutional power. Some of it was just people indulging their worst instincts, uh, and because they knew that
3: they had a moment to. Sometimes a scream is better than a thesis. Um, mm-hmm. What would you What did you make of? Um, is it George Holiday the who actually wrote? Yes. Um, I mean, as you pointed out, this is the first viral remind us a little bit of that and also how it affected him.
6: Yeah, sure. So right. George holiday, Argentine immigrant. Uh, he was a plumber who was not long, even in LA, um, at the time that this happened. So on March 3rd, 1991, he lives in an area, uh, in San Fernando Valley, a little neighborhood called Lakeview terrace. And he wakes up and he hears this commotion outside of his apartment. And it's, all these cops beating up on Rodney King. And in that moment, he has a home camera uh, that he, you know, uses to film the beating. And that is the, you know, that's how this all starts, right? Like that, none of, we're not talking about this if George Holiday isn't curious, if he isn't a curious enough to get up in the middle of the night, which is like one o'clock in the morning. And also if he doesn't have what at the time was like very rare like people just didn't have like home video cameras yeah. like that back then in 1991 as we, we all know right I'm I'm not explaining this to children but uh <laughs> you know uh but yeah so you know so you had to have those two elements in play and so he takes video of this and his curiosity gets the better of him it could have easily have stopped um he he tried to take the give the tape over to the LAPD or I'm sorry, he asked them what was going on. They said, ah, we're not answering any questions about that. And his curiosity got the better of him and he went on and gave it to a local TV station and history is made. So yeah, George Holiday, man, he um, over the years uh, grew embittered at the media. And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. One, I think he believes that people blame him for the riots, just the mere existence of the tape, which led to the prosecution, which led to the not guilty verdicts. You know, when that happens, you know, he think people, I guess, maybe communicated to him that his tape is the reason that this all happened. So he's upset about that. He's upset about the fact that people use race as a pretext for talking about this. He says, well, look, I'm from Argentina. The cops beat people up all the time down there. I don't understand why that's such a big deal in America. And, you know, I'm willing to buy that from somebody that's not necessarily from here, that is not familiar with the, you know, the long history of police brutality and police violence in this country. And then he didn't get the money he deserved, man. Um, You know, he got $500 from the TV station for its use, like in perpetuity, right? And that's it. He'd been able to capitalize in some ways, you know, very small amounts over the years, but for the most part, he never got anything out of it. And I could kind of see what he's saying. You know, my life was totally, you know, thrown into upheaval over this and I didn't even get any money over it. I mean, he, he, you know, he told me that his wife left him in part because of the stress and the media coverage of it, um, that he really kind of had to like disappear and recede from public view for a while. And so when we found him again, this past summer, he's, in his early 60s, he's a plumber. He's still trying to buy a home in Southern California. And this tape is out there and it's gone viral. All these people have had access to it and used it in all sorts of ways. And he's still trying to get a foothold here in, in, in California. And, you know, unfortunately, he died, you know, maybe a few months after we, we spoke to him um, of COVID complications at the age of 61. But, yeah, it was just really, you know, talking to him. It was really tragic because he just, I think today people would be a little bit more savvier about, you know, giving up a tape like that and preserving their, their financial stake in it, but he just never got that. So there were a lot of reasons he was mad and, you know, unfor- you know, he, he had a case in a lot of those instances.
1: Joel Anderson is the host of Slow Burn Season 6 on the LA Riots. It's a really great podcast. It's really deep and complicated and rich and uh, you should listen to it. Check it out. Can Thanks, I Joel. also
2: add that if you have not listened to Joel's uh, podcast about Tupac, you should go back and listen to that as well. And Biggie. And, Tupac. and Biggie. And I'm Biggie. sorry. I oh, left out Biggie. Thank you. I'm <laughs> sorry. That is just like you one of my great. favorite no. <laughs> podcasts of all time.
6: Um, you all are much too kind. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a, a pleasure for
1: real and a privilege. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you, John Dickerson, are sitting in your garret, thinking up rhymes for political parties, what are you going to be chattering about as you drink alone?
3: I mentioned the, the review of Afghanistan in the defense bill, which is fascinating to me because I think Afghanistan, which was once considered by some sort of flippantly the good war, you know, turned out very much not to be. Um, and where you put down the line, the various mistakes in that really is just deeply interesting to me. And connected to that is the reporting of Sharon Alfonsi, who's with 60 Minutes, who went, Afga- went to Afghanistan and told the story of what's taking there. And also Christina Goldbaum of the, of the New York Times, who has covered it in Afghanistan and who's not just her writing, but also appearance on the Daily was, I guess it was Wednesday's version of last week, was just amazing on the ground reporting about the utter deterioration of that country, how it's connected to U.S. policy, but also a reminder that the Taliban is letting all of this d- destruction take place as well. Anyway, just amazing reporting um, that I would recommend to everyone. Emily, what
1: are you chattering about?
2: Bell Hooks died. Bell Hooks, the really important feminist black writer who in my house in college, which had at least two women's studies majors in it, as we called it at the time, bell hooks was just an incredibly important presence. She has this book from 1981 called ain't I a woman about black feminism that for me will just always stand for the idea of intersectionality that you have to think about both, um, or I should say all kinds of identities when you're thinking about subordination. And she also wrote a really interesting book about black men and mass masculinity called We Real Cool. That's about wrestling with, you know, why black men she felt weren't necessarily the advocates for women and black women as she would have wanted. And she really talks about why that problem resulted from all the oppression and exclusion that black men have experienced over history. And I just feel like she's one of those people like I I sort of can't believe that she was a real person, partly because she has this lowercase name that made her even more a figure of myth to me. But they're just certain writers who kind of tower over a field in a way that I was surprised to hear that she died because it just didn't almost seem to me like she could just be a regular mortal human being. So anyway, she was just an amazing presence and I am really grateful for all the discussion I remember of her work um, along the way.
1: I want to chatter about a really interesting story I saw on the Washington Post, a very heart heartening story about a rapper who I don't know logic because I'm old. I don't know who logic is, but logic is a very successful rapper apparently. And about four or five years ago, he wrote a song 1-800-273-8255. And that song title is the phone number for the national suicide prevention uh, lifeline that you can call if you are having suicidal ideation or just, you know, just want someone to talk to. And he did this song. It was a very popular song. It was a great video. It was a really, really good video of it, which is about somebody thinking about ending their life and, and struggling with their sexuality and thinking about ending the, their life and then calling the, the hotline at the end. And so somebody, a scientist, uh, a group led by Thomas nieder uh did a study about what happened after the song came out and discovered that there was a huge upsurge in daily call volumes to the US National Suicide Prevention Lifeline during the period when this song was popular when it was being when it was being promoted and that if you you know make inferences based on based on good data about what that means in terms of suicides in the US Probably two hundred and forty five, something around the order of two hundred and forty five people did not take their own life during this time because of the song, which is an extraordinary thing it's an yeah. extraordinary thought that this one song and just just the the beneficial effect of it was was that good and' it's, it's a comparison they're, they're talking about there are two effects, I guess, with suicide. One is the Verter effect, the, like the sorrows of young virtue, when people when there's a, a, um, a famed suicide, a suicide of a person who's known that uh, the volume of suicide in the country goes up, that people hear about it, and it actually increases suicidal ideation in people. And that's called the Virter effect. And there's something called the Papageno effect, which is when, I guess, alternatives to suicide are publicized, that suicide drops down. And this is an example of the Papageno effect. I guess Papageno from the Mozart opera, Ma- Magic Flute, I suppose, it must be the Magic Flute. So what a very heartening story. And congratulations to Logic for doing that. We have great listener chatters. You have sent us listener chatters to GabFest at Slate.com by email, or you've tweeted them to us at @slategabfest. Slate And this week's listener chatter is one of the greatest listener chatters of all time. It comes from Adrian Monthony. I have to say, I read this article aloud to my girlfriend last night, and I just wept with laughter. So <laughs> let's, let's hear from Adrian.
7: Hey Emily, John, and David, this is Adrian Monthony from Quebec City. I don't know about you folks, but I've yet to have the opportunity to eat at a Michelin Star restaurant. And honestly, after my cocktail chatter this week, I'm not sure I feel as much of the Michelin Star FOMO as I used to. I'm chattering about a hilariously scathing review of a Michelin Star restaurant in Southern Italy written by Geraldine De Reuter on her blog called The Everywhereist. Please check it out, it is a fantastic piece of writing. In it, she describes a 27-course meal that felt more like a -a four-and-a-half-hour avant-garde performance with the suggestion of food. I didn't realize that the Michelin star experience included being served something you were allergic to, scolded for stepping out for a cigarette, or being chastised for eating the food that is in front of you. If you're feeling left out of that Michelin star experience, you won't have to feel it much longer. Pour yourself a cocktail and enjoy reading about someone else's meal from hell. Did you
1: guys read the story? Yes,
2: yes, totally, yes. And it has very funny parts to it. I think it actually kind of starts slow, which you could argue is part of its art, because the meal also started incredibly slow. Um, but it is totally worth sticking with.
1: When when they get to the part where they have to slurp the foam out of the plaster cast of the chef's mouth, unreal. <laughs> that was that was the part that really got me going. I loved it. I loved it so much. Thank you, Adrian. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio, June Thomas, Managing Producer, and Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there or send us your chatter at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? That's good. Great. Good. Happy holidays to you. We have our conundrum show coming up in a couple of weeks and, and just a little inside, insider info. We've already taped it. We've already taped that show. It's in the can. So we've already, whatever conundrums we were going to consider for that show are conundrumized, conundrumized. We've considered them already, but we had so many good ones. We got sent literally 800 conundrums this year. They were so good. And we, we had so much fun
2: talking about them.
1: Oh, my God. We had so much fun. This, this is You've you got to listen to this, your show. And we had our best. Well, no, you're being too great.
2: Best is bad. Yes. Yeah.
7: We
1: had a great guest. We had a great guest. We had a great guest. Uh, so it's going to be great. But we decided to save a few uh, conundrums. or so we decided to, to use some conundrums that we didn't get to in the, in, the, in the show for this Slate Plus segment. And maybe for future Slate Plus segments, we'll use some of the other ones. So here's one how would you try to sell liberal arts to STEM freaks? This is a question I think about a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I would love, I have some thoughts, but what about you guys?
2: In a sense, liberal arts is the most important for people who are not going to go into anything related to liberal arts, because it's your chance to broaden your mind and have a backdrop for music and art and literature and all these pleasures that you can kind of unlock for yourself. Um, That's the argument I've made to my kids who are not STEM freaks, but are not like liberal arts driven at all. It doesn't always work with them. I think partly because I'm the one who's making the argument, but I feel like it's incredibly important
3: whether you're communicating through words or through a scientific development or anything that you're doing in STEM work, it will affect the human condition, presumably. And the deepest understanding you can have of the human condition is important in order to know where your work is going to land. So either if you're trying to convince people to take a vaccine that they might not want to take, it's helpful to know how people react to being told things that might frighten them or where they're, coming from and studying the humanities and studying art and literature does all of that. Um, It also makes you just a clearer communicator. And then also, if you're messing around with the building blocks of human existence, you might want to have acquainted yourself with art and literature that has played with those themes before and played out some of the consequences, both obvious and not so obvious to monkeying around with that kind of stuff.
1: See, Frankenstein. My father is a doctor and a researcher and also a man who loves music and literature. And he, was, uh, he ran a lab at NIH for his whole career. And he, I remember talking to him over the years about how as time went on, as specialization got greater and greater, the scientists that he was working with and doctors who were working with knew less and less about the worlds of music and art, which he cared so much about. And literature and he just thought it was such a shame that people were so specialized and so narrow and he thought that led to a narrowness of thinking generally and a, a lack of imagination in their scientific work in addition to their in addition to a kind of pleasure denied to them because they just there were things they just couldn't experience that that um that were great now he may, you know that i'm sure he was wrong i'm sure that I'm sure that uh, a lot of those scientists did have pleasures outside and did have kind of did have things that they were consumed by that weren't simply science, but he, he did feel that the narrowness that consumes anyone in any profession is a, is a mistake. And I guess I would, I think what you guys have both said there is beautiful and bright. And I, maybe the only things I would add are that in fact, a lot of great insight about science comes not from necessarily just the scientific work but from a broader understanding of the world around you and of how people behave and that some great revolutions and great advances and great kind of conceptual ways of thinking don't exactly have to do with a with the scientific insight but with the scientific insight married to a human insight and so having that is uh is great. And then I also say like some of the most valuable people I think, and I'll, I'll cite Atul Gawande as the number one example of this are scientists who can explain science to lay people and they can do it because they are so good with language or so good with image. Atul's books about science and about medicine and about death are magnificent books, not just because he's a great doctor, although he must be a great doctor, but because he is a great doctor who can use words to make those clear to the world. And so your ability to translate is greater if you are somebody who has has bathed in the liberal arts. And uh, that's an important thing to do. Next question. In what circumstances do you tell people what you really think about their artistic work? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today.
5: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com.
4: It's my little escape.
5: Now Judy's the life of the party.
4: Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon.
5: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. Judy.